Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. The first thing I want to tell you, I may have quoted this before, but I love it. It's a poem, part of a poem by the magnificent Antonio Machado. And it's beautiful. I, I tried to learn Spanish so I could read his poetry and I could sort of, but not really. But in English, it goes like this. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I dreamt, oh, marvelous error, that there was a beehive here inside my heart and golden bees were making white comb and sweet honey from my old failures. I read that and just went, oh, it was like somebody had taken off a 90 pound pack. Oh, my old failures that I carry around as the, you know, shame and I should, I wish I could go back, regret all these things. And here he was telling me that it's not just a failure is not just okay. It's actually useful. It could, could make the sweetest parts of my life. Well, because I'm doing this course on practical wayfinding at the moment, and it's about creativity, the creativity mindset, I have been reading about the discovery of and the invention of many, many, many things. And here is what I have found. Error isn't just useful. It's absolutely crucial to getting things right. The way we get things wrong educates us, turns us a little bit. So the goal that we're looking at is more in line with, with reality and with our truth. Um, making mistakes is, it, is the way we learn. I mean, think about the way you learn to talk. It wasn't by studying a grammar book and saying, should I have lain down, mummy? Or should you have lain me down? <laughs> Nobody knows how to conjugate the verb to lie. And you certainly didn't. I read one um, developmental book that said uh, babies learn to talk because they're rewarded for proper grammar. And I was like, no, a baby who says down, down, bam, bam, mom, I love you is going to get rewarded. And that's not good grammar, according to the culture. So we learned to speak English or speak whatever language you speak in. Yeah, well, you obviously speak English if you're watching this, but whatever languages you've learned, you learn them slowly and badly at first. Um, Mae West said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing slowly. And I always say, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly because that is how we start out. So for example, I, I started to learn Mandarin Chinese in a classroom at Harvard where both the culture of Harvard and the, the incredible ancient tradition of Chinese intellectualism, which was, it's like phenomenon, phenomenal. I mean, those in China to rise up the chain of society for thousands of years required passing exams and being brilliant at things that other people were not even thinking about taking written exams on things. So there, were, there was a double cultural pressure, don't make a mistake. And I never like, never really learned to speak Chinese, like relax. And I mean, I started dreaming in Chinese, but I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes. And then I could have conversations, but the people would go, oh, and I knew I wasn't doing it correctly. Sometimes I was just flat out wrong. But I tried and I tried and I tried to be perfect and I sweated buckets and I got cold sores from the stress. Then, um, I went to Japan after a few years of this, 
uh, just because my then husband was working on something and we at that point had uh, like a 15 month old daughter. So my eldest. So I used to plunk her down in front of Japanese learning TV. Like if you're not about, I, I totally get it about don't plug your kids into a TV, but Sesame Street nearly saved my life on many occasions by not only entertaining, but teaching my children. And there were many Japanese programs like this too. And I watched my daughter mouthing the words. I mean, she didn't understand them. I didn't understand them. But then it would go to, to um, commercials that you'd see over and over, right? Certain products, you see the same commercial over and over. And I started to be able to like burst out those, those like Ajinomoto. That's, it, there's a brand of, um, a spice it's called ajinomoto and i was like oh ajinomoto and it just was in my head because i'd seen it through advertising and they're really good at getting things into your head and we we were there for about six weeks and when i went back i briefly <laughs> spoke japanese well enough to get into test into harvard's third year language classes and that was unexpected and then I got pregnant and my brain fell out and uh, never really learned to speak Japanese either. But while I was in Japan, I would just blur things. And then I got a tutor and I would make mistakes that were so silly that she nearly fell off her chair laughing, but she only spoke Japanese. So we, we made a relationship work just in Japanese and I came to love her deeply. And we had this whole relationship always in this one language that I had never learned before. And I was making mistakes you know, 50 of the dozen. It didn't matter. I learned so much more Japanese in those six weeks than I learned Chinese in like four years. I was like, wow, this is the way my brain works by making mistakes, seeing where they're wrong, having my tutor laugh hysterically, which in Japan, boy, they're so polite to get someone to fall off your chair laughing at a mistake you made. That's, that's going to be a real mistake. I got to tell you. So I started to realize that just bonking around and making mistakes was a fine way to learn. And when I went back to Harvard after a year in, in Asia, I, I remember being in a philosophy of science class. And I, I, was, I went back with a firm conviction that I was going to make mistakes and I was going to make them in the open and I was going to make them proudly. So like I was in this philosophy of science class and we were talking about, you know, the law of, of the laws of thermodynamics. And I was like, hand up. And I said, okay, here's my question. What's fire? Like, what exactly is fire? It's not animal, vegetable, or mineral. You couldn't, and all the other students around the seminar table laughed me to shame. Whoa, ho, ho, she doesn't know what fire is. And bless his heart, the teaching fellow running the session said, okay, somebody tell her what fire is exactly. Nope. No one actually knew. It's one of those dumb questions that you can go for your whole lifetime without really knowing. Turns out it's the release of the energy that's holding the molecules together that have been stitched together by the energy of the sun. And when those con the connections break, poof, you see this burst of energy in the form of light and heat. Ultimately, fire is sunshine captured in an object and then released. Like, how cool is that to know? And just because I was dumb and, and made mistakes and assumed that I would be I would be in error a lot of the time and I was relaxed with that I learned so much more so much more rapidly after that 
So uh, there are tons of examples I've been reading about, like Alexander Fleming was studying all these bacteria, and then one day he made a mistake, a bad mistake, but it happens in the lab. He allowed one of his Petri dishes, or Petri dishes, in England, it's Petri, but in America, it's Petri. So I'll say Petri. He allowed contamination of his bacteria experiment. A mold called penicillium got into one of the Petri dishes where these bacteria were living. And he came to work in the morning, he's like, ooh, I've contaminated my study, gotta throw that one out. And then he noticed that all the bacteria had retreated away from this mold and were dying. And dun da da da, penicillin, a drug that has kept many of us alive when we might have died before it was invented. Mistake? Yeah, absolutely. Error? A useful one. Uh, same thing with photography. Um, Louis Daguerre, he was trying and trying and trying to make images on these plates that were treated with um, different chemicals and he just couldn't get anything to, like there were no pictures. One night he stored his stuff in a cabinet and he bumped it and it spilled a bottle of mercury. And when he came to get his panels in the morning and pulled them out, they all had pictures on them. Because of his mistake, the mercury was the thing that they were using to make pictures. So because he made this dumb mistake, he discovered photography, which is leads directly to what we're doing right now. And then there's, I love this one. This is George Crumb, the inventor of the potato chip. He was a chef at a resort and one day this obnoxious customer kept, he was trying to make fried potatoes. So this customer kept bringing, sending back the potatoes and saying he wanted them thinner and, and more well cooked. So George Crumb in a fit of anger, cut those potatoes hair thin, like he cut them wafer thin and then he cooked the living daylights until they were burnt. And they he took them out there, the waiter took them out there to the guest who loved them and he had invented the potato chip. Yay. That wasn't exactly a mistake except in controlling his temper. Customers always write, well, I'll show you. The point is it was nothing he was intending. So this is interesting because it gives rise, especially, you know, I've been reading dozens of books on invention and innovation and, vir and always, I'm not gonna say virtually always, always they're based on a stack of failures. And the person who was doing it, figuring it out didn't know the answer at the end of the book. There was no answer at the end of the book. There was just blundering. And blundering is what we all do best, right? So if we can learn to think of our blunders as a source of genius, as a source of white comb and sweet honey, there are millions of things that we could invent that we're not creating in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in the world, because we're shutting down in shame when we should be going, a, a failure? Oh my God, that's all material. That's fantastic. So the way you learn to make honey from old failures is to notice the patterns in your brain that are called a negativity bias. So if you're, I always say, if you're in a room full of puppies with one black mamba that can kill you with one bite, you're not gonna be focusing on the puppies, you're gonna be focusing on the mamba. That's negativity bias, it keeps us safer in nature. But it also means that as soon as a big idea comes up, we're likely to go, oh no, no, that, would, that can't work, that can't work. I, I might get hurt, I might get my ego bruised, I'm at no, 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 no. Or I did something, but now I'm gonna criticize it before other people can criticize me more, right? Like self-defensive criticism. <laughs> so 
I would like you to think about turning your automatic negative thoughts, that's A-N-T or ant, so the ants go marching, and learn to think instead of encouraging and accepting thoughts or eat. I used to have a shirt that said breathe on it and I would put a sweater on over it or a scarf and it would take out the um, the BR and the HE on the end and I just walked around in a uh, shirt that said eat which is definitely an encouraging accepting thought. So change your ants to eats. I have an example of this. I was talking to a friend who does this really really well and once you formulated it, once your body has learned to take negative things and switch it to a positive, it actually becomes a skill your brain will do automatically. But you have to start it at first and you have to repeat it. It's just like a muscle. It only gets strong if you use it. So I was talking yesterday to a friend who is really good at this and I was talking about rescuing hummingbirds from inside my house in California and then one, it brought up a terrible memory of a hummingbird in a different place that flew into a window because it was trying to get out and I ran to pick it up and take it outside and it died in my hands. And that memory of it dying right there just breaks my heart. And like this, she said, oh wow, it died some completely surrounded by your love. Everything's gonna die, she said. But this, one, this little hummingbird decided to die surrounded by love. What a gift. And I was like, Wow, that was quick. You switched that really fast. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing bad about the bad situations in your life. There's a lot bad, but there's also something good. And finding the something good in the failure is what has created most of the great innovations of human history. And it makes sweet honey. It, you can make a million things with wax and the taste of honey is really sweet. So if you learn and practice this, I have a little formula because I'm a life coach and that's what we do. It just goes like this. And then I'll take some questions, please. Uh, think of a mistake, you know, a, a failure in your background that you, you know, you feel really bad about. Notice, so that's step one, find a failure. Number two, just notice how you're seeing it as I failed and that's a problem. And then say, I like to say set the bees loose, like the, the beehive in his heart, in Antonio Mejano's heart. The bees are like brain neurons, they get to work. You won't take the negativity bias, so they get to work finding what they need to make honey and to make wax. And so the way you do that is by saying, no, I'm gonna wait till there's something good about this. And my favorite story for this is how Liz Gilbert, after her first marriage failed, uh, so failure, right? So depressed, so anxious, couldn't find anything that was going on that was felt good except one thing Italian she wanted to learn Italian and thus came the book Eat Pray Love which is sold to 13 million people and is probably the biggest publishing success in the in the living memory so and when you talk to her about it she's like there was one tiny thread and the way I made it okay the way I turned it into something okay was by bringing a lesson forward going on an adventure to try to take in the meaning of my um, of this failed marriage and then making sense of it for myself. And boy, was that sweet honey and white comb for so many readers. Okay, so <laughs> somebody asked me if I speak Chinese and I'm not gonna, no, I can't read it. 
I've forgotten all my characters. I only recognize Tien right now because I'm what, Ni and Tien. Otherwise, I'm far too nervous to, to read the characters. Sorry. Oh, see, I just failed. <clears throat> Don't worry, I'll make some honey and wax out of it. I'll be up all night. <laughs> Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. So Donna says, why do we fear failure and doing badly? Our courage seems to our culture seems to judge it as we grow, but it is adorable as children. How do we go back to that? By sheer pit bull persistence, Donna, by saying this thought makes me furious and it makes me depressed and I hate it and I will not just go into failure um, and go gently into that good night. I am going to find myself as adorable making mistakes as everybody found me when I was a little baby. So we were in a meeting with my little staff that runs our coach training and everything and I said to my, <laughs> the woman who runs all the sort of back end logistics of, of all the complex website stuff and webinars and everything. And I said, okay, I have an idea and I hope it doesn't create extra work for you. And she just laughed and laughed and she said, oh, you're so cute. When you think it won't make extra work for me, it always makes extra work for me. And my whole staff was like, wow, she's so cute. I mean, if I were they, I should probably be running after them with pitches and rakes and things to, to wound them, but they just decided I'm cute. So I'll take it. And I'm learning to think of myself that way when I'm goofy. So Marianne says, I agree. How do we learn to allow our children to fail? This is the hardest thing as a mom. Yeah, it's like stand back and, and watch them. And when they come back, I just read a book that has a really interesting passage on this. It's called The Four Sacred Gifts by Anita Sanchez. It's about in, indigenous peoples and their gifts that they have to offer um, the insane dominant society culture of the planet but she talks about trying, yeah, that, that's the book. She talks about her son coming in and he's just been dumped by his girlfriend. And he's like, mom, it hurts, it hurts so much. I can't believe it hurts. And her first instinct is to panic and take him to a hospital because she doesn't even know what's wrong. But she's been in all this training to be um, a, a facilitator for these indigenous meetings that, you know, they connect with huge corporations to have them um, work in more sustainable harmony with ecosystems and stuff. So she had been trained and she sat with her son and she was like, so tell me all about it. And he's like, oh, my girlfriend dumped me and it's uh, and she wanted so much to give advice, but she knew that wasn't the most helpful thing. So she was like, yeah, I'm right here. Tell me more. That's how you let your children fail. You, instead of protecting them from anything the world could do to them, which you can't, you, expect that they're going to be they're going to have failures and it's going to hurt them too so show them how to handle a failure by sitting with them and saying it's okay 
I'm right here. Whatever you failed at, whatever has gone wrong, it can be made into sweet honey and white comb. And as you, you'll get older, if you do this, if you transform your ants into eats, then you can start to see every failure as a source of wisdom. And it, they will, she talks about how her son really caught on and started to use it himself to change his own mind so that he had an internal programming that switched automatically from a negative thought to something supportive and positive. So yeah, it's a good thing to do with our kids. Anne says, how can I stop shame from shutting me down? It can be paralyzing. Oh, I get you. And the way to shut shame down, now the shame, the thing is it makes us not want to be seen. So in my book, The Way of Integrity, I talk about Dante getting through all his, he drops all his illusions, all his errors of thought, but he has one left before he can go to paradise in the Divine Comedy. And his dead girlfriend shows up and says, you have to di disentangle yourself from fear and shame that you no longer speak like one who dreams. So the deepest illusion of humans is that we're not good enough and we should be ashamed. What is his reaction to seeing this beloved that he's missed so terribly since she died? He can't even look at her because he knows that she sees him clear through. So he drops his face and he cries and cries and cries and she's like, oh, this shame, we gotta get rid of it. <laughs> So one thing is we have to be seen clearly. So taking our shame out and saying, what Byron Katie says is that everything you most, you think you most don't want people to know about you is actually what you most want them to know about you. So for example, I was sexually abused. Part of you does, is shamed and doesn't want anyone to know, but part of you is desperate for the light of truth and really wants you to speak out. So fear and shame, entangle us. Now, the way it happens in the Divine Comedy is Dante gets sort of baptized, dunked in two sides of a river, and the first side makes him forget everything he's ever done wrong. And the second side makes him remember everything he's ever done right. Now, think about how closely those two things are intertwined. So Alexander Fleming could have gone on and said, oh, I let mold grow in my Petri dishes. It was horrible. Oh, I'm such a klutz. I'm such a moron. Instead of, whoo, I just saved millions of lives by stumbling upon penicillin. So you can, you, you, you need to be seen. So if you bring out your shame and talk to it with other people, that's what AA and other 12-step groups do. You talk to your sponsor, you talk to the group, and it cleanses that shame away but also learn to turn, even in one thing, like, oh, I, I didn't parent as well yesterday as I should have. You'll be thinking about your mistakes, turn your attention from the automatic negative thoughts to what went right. Here are the things I did right as a parent. Because turning toward the positive is 50 times more, um, it, it integrates behaviors 50 times more powerfully than punishment. So whatever your critical voice is saying is 50 times less powerful than what the positive voice is saying if you let yourself see and hear the positive. So make a list of all the things you did right, even in the situation where you failed. And then let people see you. And really, daylight is the cure for shame, being seen. Mary says, how do you tell the difference between negativity bias and a direction you really shouldn't go? Very. We talk a lot about this in my Wayfinder coach training because we just think if something's bad for us, it must be good for us. It feels bad. 
But actually, if your heart wants to go towards something and you've got butterflies because you're a little scared, that's a go. If your heart says, oh, no, trapped, ah, bad, wounded, that's, that's your whole, that's your negativity bias saying this, this thought, this place I'm living right now in my thoughts is bad for me. So you can go to your healthy fear and use it to move forward, but you don't have to keep anything that is feeling toxic or noxious to you. You should definitely go away from that. That's not the negativity bias. That is wisdom. And learning to tell the difference is the wisdom. So that's why the 12-step the prayer is, uh, help me change what I can, what is it, the serenity prayer? Dear God, please help me uh, accept the things I cannot change, change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Something like that. So yeah, you'll get the wisdom to know the difference as you try, fail, try, fail, or in the words of Samuel Beckett all over the internet, fail again, fail better. You will get slowly and surely better. Christina says, it seems human life is meant to have loads of mistakes because understanding only comes after dealing with them. So true, Christina. But how come so many people don't get the meaning of mistakes but understand, understand it as a punishment? This is because we are socialized by people who are giving us, they're passing down cultural rules that are meaningless to our natural selves. They want us to fit in with the people around them. So we're taught over and over again that if you make a mistake, that's a problem. You get a red mark on a test. You get shamed by the teacher. You get a bad grade. That never happens in nature. Nature never gives you a D minus or slaps you with a ruler across the knuckles for not getting the spelling right. Nature just says, oh yeah, you didn't find water in that direction. Try another direction. Or you didn't make fire that way. Try another way. It's always saying, okay, you know what didn't work, so keep moving. And if you get lots and lots and lots of what didn't work, you stumble across things that do work. And there are usually multiple ways that they can work. And that's the history of human invention, you guys. It really is. Jessica says, growing up religious, I struggle with the difference between spiritual bypassing and true reframing or looking for the honey. How do you tell the difference? You tell the difference because... Um, Faking it feels like a lie. It doesn't make your body feel good. It doesn't make your body feel right. So I've had so many clients who've said, you know, I have a spouse and they're not really kind to me, but I see it, I, you know, the pain of their childhood, plus they've got a bad thing at work. And it's really good for me to learn to accept the verbal abuse and whatever, because that's going to be good. And as they go, it just feels ickier and ickier and ickier. And that like they're walking into a, a trap of seeing a situation that does feel bad to the heart, to the body, and trying to make sweet honey and comb from that. Ugh. Better to get out of the, the relationship and say, oh God, that failed. But failure is what moves me forward to success, to making something wonderful. Just notice the feeling in the body. It will be yucky, yucky, icky. Bleh. If you're trying to sweeten a horrible situation, it's like putting a dab of honey in with the cyanide or whatever it is. Ugh. So when you really turn it around and say, huh, what's happening here is that my spouse's attention is always on my spouse and my attention is always on my spouse. Perhaps it should be even, <laughs> you know, and then realizing you're gonna need to, potentially gonna need to speak up or leave. 
Okay, Lummy Jet writes, how to stop trying to predict or preempt what has to happen? The curse of perfectionism. How, how ironic and beautiful it is that I, am, uh, I run into this right at the end of, the, of today's gathering room when the very first question was written in Chinese and I totally froze and failed. I'll be looking those characters up, you can be damn sure. But I now have to deal with my perfectionist and here's how I deal with it. I don't care. So I'm still a perfectionist. I have a very perfectionistic personality and I'm full of failure and I learned not to care. And the way I learned not to care is to get out of my human ego and back up and be my spiritual self, which is just looking for the experience of being human and material and the learning that comes with it. And that is guaranteed to involve failure after failure after failure. So I figure, look, the divine or the universe put me in this situation where I'm bound to fail. So perfectionist inside, I hear you screaming at me that everything has to go right all the time, but I don't care. <laughs> I do not care. Just say it. You'll feel so free. Final question. Do you have a favorite book or two on how to love and support masculine people? I can't wait for Martha's book on masculine energy. Woohoo! I feared my son's masculinity. I want to intentionally support them for their own unique humans, bodies, and spirits. The book that leaps to my mind is From Wild Man to Wise Man. And um, also, uh, what's the other one? I can see it in my mind's eye. I'm going to have to like put it in the chat or something because we're after time. And I, I can't remember the name of the book I'm trying to remember. I have failed. But from this failure will come white comb and sweet honey because I'll find that book reference and y'all, I hope, will forgive me for my failures and we'll just cruise on exchanging our ants for our eats all week long until I see you again here on the gathering room. Thank you for joining. Bye! For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com compass, and we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 